0: Attention, you are now entering the debarkation area. No talking, no smoking. Follow the orange line to the processing area. The next scheduled departure to the prison is in two hours. You now have the option to terminate and be cremated on the premises. If you elect this option, notify the duty sergeant in your processing area. All right, well, it is, it is uh, great to be here again. I'm uh, really interested in this subject because uh, I'm not an expert in eschatology. That is the, the, the doctrine of the end times. What I am is uh, an intellectual historian. Uh, the history of uh, religion and ideas is what I care about. And I also really enjoy, whenever I'm speaking somewhere, talking about what I think is part of the local history that we might not see as history because we grew up in it. Stacey and I, my wife Stacey's over here, we uh, started dating in uh, 1991 on a mission trip to uh, Costa Rica. And uh, we were living here in non-denominational Orange County. Uh, my family had come out. Uh, essentially, my folks were kind of counterculture hippies that made a little bit of money in real estate and decided they were capitalists. And so they moved to, to Mission Viejo to start, uh, essentially, my dad was working in real estate. And he was there with the Mission Viejo company. But it was, a, it was kind of a culture shock for us, coming from the non-traditional hippie world of Boulder, Colorado, and then coming out to here. We thought California was going to be weirder than Colorado, and it was not. Colorado, definitely weirder. California, especially here in, uh, in the late 70s and the early 80s, really was, for us, uh, interesting, surprising, but it was known, or is known, really, by uh, historians of American Christianity as the evangelical Bible Belt of the West. Uh, Now, this is not true for San Francisco, LA, San Diego's its own thing, but it's still closer to our orbit. So that in some ways, uh, for those of you who are Lutherans, you'll know uh, the the letters LCMS and ELCA. If you're an LCMS Lutheran, you might find that uh, in some ways, you might experience a New York LCMS church or a Portland LCMS church as more progressive than a 1988 ELCA church in Orange County, or at least by the time you get to the end of the 90s. Uh, And why is this? Largely, it's because of the Jesus freaks, the surfer Christians that were baptizing people in Laguna Beach uh, with a Bible in hand and ripped jeans, and they were were on a mission to to evangelize, and they still really uh, do, but what, what was happening at the time <clears throat> is they were also evangelizing displaced Christians from uh, other parts of the country. So people that had grown up Catholic in uh, Illinois might come out here and reconnect with church now in the form of these non-denominational churches and, and Bible studies at the beach. You would see the same with people who grew up Methodist or, or Presbyterian from the Midwest or the East Coast. Everybody coming out here that wasn't from here needed to find roots. And a lot of people that were coming, like my parents, uh, to suburban Southern California, uh, they started to have kids. And so they wanted to get their kids into youth groups. And so the, the, the real draw for a lot of these families was, even if you grew up Presbyterian, with maybe a 200 people in a little white church, when you came to California, your kids could be in surf camp with. The Proto Saddleback, you know the, what became the big um, uh, mega church. We were part of a church called Grace Community Church down in uh, in Lake Forest, which was kind of the mega church, like the medium-sized mega church, uh, medium-sized mega church before Saddleback. <clears throat> but in many ways, as many as many of these churches did really great work. They also sometimes were cannibalizing from traditional churches and. In uh, Anaheim and even around here, people were saying, "Well, does Redeemer Lutheran have a brass band and dancing monkeys?" You know, uh, Saddleback has uh, the the gal from uh, the sitcom. You know, so there was a way in which this movement really picked up a lot of steam because also people were coming to the West for the fame. You know, Um, ironically, of course, the one that really got people going was the Crystal Cathedral, which is now Roman Catholics uh, running that place. But you can see that the Crystal Cathedral and Saddleback Church had a similar kind of theme going on, <clears throat> which was there are, there are movers and shakers on the West Coast, people that are maybe in Hollywood, you know, that are going to be associated with us. And if you're a young family, you want to be a part of these churches, not only to have your kids grow up in the faith in an entertaining way, but also so that you can have business networking and things and, and just friends and family. Or maybe you want to get married and you don't want to meet somebody at a bar, you know, that's a great place to go. You go to a mega church, you've got a lot of people you can date, right? But none of these churches that we think about today as important for Orange County are really as important as two movements in the area, and that is the Calvary Chapel movement, and then the the offshoot of that, the Vineyard movement. And even if you don't experience them directly as as a, a citizen of Southern California, you probably picked up on, if you grew up here with us, a lot of the themes that are really particular to the Calvary Chapel movement and not to, let's say the historic Lutheran tradition, right? Uh, Some of those things might be common to Lutheran pietism like the importance of small group Bible study, um, praise music being a a component of of worship. But the Calvary Chapel movement was also urgent because they uh, they were really on the scene during the Cold War. For those of us, too young to remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, it's probably hard for us to realize how real the book of Revelation felt to people thinking about all of these nuclear warheads pointing at us. And at any minute, um, Gog and Magog are descending, and Armageddon's happening in very real and picturesque terms. And so that's partly what I want to talk about. Before I get any farther, just to to plug a few things, and then really mostly what Stacy does, at uh, um is uh, <clears throat> she, uh, she does uh, something uh, for for sometimes retreats where she will do uh, some kind of contemplative prayer work and, and other and other uh, practices. But the main thing that my wife does that I dig is she is a, what's called a death doula. This does not replace pastors or therapists, uh, but it, what she does is she coordinates for people um, the the process of facing death. They might be might be a ways off, it might be very imminent. Um, it's been kind of helpful for Stacy because she's been able to to work with clients um, through Zoom when they otherwise, for a while, were are not able to really have access because of health needs or whatever. I'm going to talk a little bit about why what she's what she's doing in this role, helping people uh, face death, and you know she might meet with somebody weekly or, or monthly, and then uh, there are even opportunities for vigils and things at the end, but. The reason I mention this is, it's helped me to kind of think about the way the church needs to think about declining membership in Lutheran churches, um, the problems that we face as a society, the things that we really held dear that are now scoffed at and falling apart. Like, it doesn't matter whether we think it's the actual end of the world, a lot of times it definitely feels like the end of the world when we see all these things we've poured our hearts into, uh, sometimes feeling like uh, maybe they're not uh, not gonna be around forever. Um, Every generation thinks they live in the end times. This is a sociological phenomenon. And so when I go back to the idea of Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel living in this idea that the Soviets were going to come bomb us, and we were going to save as many souls as possible before the mega death was going to happen, uh, when Disneyland was going to get targeted or something, um, uh, which was like the one thing we're like, I don't know. It's like maybe New York City is going to get it. But Disneyland, leave, like, can we get some kind of lasers to protect Disneyland? This was when we were kids. Um, but but I remember that pretty much every service, like on a Monday night, they used to have uh, Chuck Smith's church here you know, in, uh, in Costa Mesa, uh, they'd have other people preaching there. But on Monday nights, there were these altar calls and pretty much like most of the time for me, when we, we were there, the topic was the end times. And this was, a really, this was a really big conversation. And now when I talk to students today, even students who go to Calvary chapels or to other non-denominational churches, The teaching about the rapture and the end times is pretty much not something they've heard about, which surprises me. It's very much a thing that was in the past, the big deal. But why do I say every culture does this? There's a psychologist uh, named Paul Fairweather. He was a uh, World War II fighter pilot. They called him uh, Stormy uh, because, of course, his last name was Fairweather. And when you're in World War II, everybody came up with really cool nicknames. uh, my my grandpa uh, he was uh, he was uh, here actually flying um, test flying planes during the during the World War II and they, they didn't give him a great nickname he was just Big Mal but like everybody or Mally, everybody had to have a nickname it was cool times um, we should bring that back but anyway <clears throat> um, so so Paul Fairwe- Paul Fairweather was a, a fighter pilot who. Realized something really important about psychology when he would be staring down a German plane <clears throat> or a Japanese plane He was there at D-Day actually uh, Actually Eisenhower uh, had to keep him from getting court-martialed because it was too foggy and he turned down and he said no We're gonna not we're not going in he actually stalled D-Day for a day Chuck Yeager's wingman if you know who Chuck Yeager was He became the founding uh, Christian psychologist at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena because when he was in this plane, he said there are two things you could do. You could kind of freeze up when you're facing death of another fighter plane. <clears throat> or you could decide at that moment that you're going you're to take action, you're going to live. And he realized that there were people that would be wounded in the war. And he would say that a lot of times their psychological state, their despair or the desire to keep fighting was going to have a huge impact on whether or not they were going to you know, get out of the hospital bed. And so he actually got out of being a, a pilot and got into being this uh, psychologist. And one of the key themes to his understanding of marriage uh, and life and psychology is that what we forget is that we were made for the garden. Like your psychological makeup, your, your physical being was made for whatever the life was that Adam and Eve are depicted as having, right? And what is it? They were at one with each other and God and the natural world and that made them healthier and happier and things were in balance. When they left the garden, when they went into the agricultural revolution, then they had backbreaking labor if you're dad, you know, and what does that do? It makes you pretty angry when you come home to your wife or vice versa. When the kids are like, you know, pulling out your hair and it's not just the pain and childbirth, it's the way of being after the fall creates these frictions. And what it does, Paul Fairweather said is, that as you fight with people in your life that you love, what's really going on is you're disappointed in the other person for not being what you were all meant to be. And so you're, you're, if you're not aware of the, the birthright, he calls it, the birthright of, of that harmony in relationships, then you're, you're actually pretty cruel to each other because you're rightly responding to something being wrong. Does that make sense? You're rightly responding to something being wrong. Something is wrong. But it's not wrong with your spouse. It's the whole system is out of whack. And so this also applies to whole communities. Our society, America, feels unhealthy. Nobody's feeling like we're doing great. And that's because we're not. Because we're not in that harmonious relationship. And so even though sometimes we act out in ways that might be counterproductive in society, riots, sort of thing, right? It also expresses a truth that people are frustrated, right? Um, people might not even be able to put their finger on it when they're not comfortable with what's, you know, what's going on in government or society or in the schools. So what do we do? We interpret this as the end times, and in that sense, we're right. I put up here Kali. Kali is the Hindu deity of uh, destruction, and she's associated with a yuga. There are these ages in Hinduism and the last age, so you, you start with a golden age, that's always in myths, of, of world myths. There's an age that was beautiful and golden. We feel instinctively that we have fallen from that, which is true, even if you don't have a Bible, you feel, as any society, that we're out of whack. And we realize that this can't last forever, so destruction and judgment are coming upon it. And then what next? That's the religious question for most. And in the, in the 20th century, people lost their faith after this thing called World War I. You know, there was a lot of optimism in the late 19th century, you had the Chicago World's Fair, we were gonna solve all of the world's problems through science, and then we just machine gun young boys down in the fields of of Europe, in the trenches. And so when people came back, only a few reignited their faith, like T.S. Eliot, the poet. But a lot of folks in the same generation, called the lost generation, turned to cocaine and dancing in the Roaring Twenties, or to just pure monetary concerns, speculation in the stock market, or to drinking like Hemingway, but there was a loss of faith. So there was a lot of people who didn't believe anymore. And um, so, so w- w- what happened was that, in a weird way, World War II brought people back to faith through a couple strange uh, and interesting turns of events. One was, as young men were going off to die in planes, the, the British uh, said, you know, we need to get a Christian, we need to get a Christian to, uh, to help encourage these kids with the faith of Jesus, and his name was C.S. Lewis. And so he wrote these talks that were radio talks for, for dudes that were gonna go out to die, and that became mere Christianity. What that did was, in the Anglo-American conversation, Christianity actually starts to come back a little bit. Then you get, uh, right after the war, you get Billy Graham, right after World War II, people are having the baby boom and so people wanna go back to church, right? Um, They're trying to reconnect with a faith, excuse me, for their kids. Um, And they're also, uh, around this time, worried about the communists. But we think this is very important because if I'm talking about the end times or I'm talking about eschatology, communists, Marxists have an eschatology, which is there's going to be a dictatorship of the proletariat, think, Stalin or, or Castro. And then after that, it's like the Smurfs. Everybody's living in an anarchy, right? So everyone's happy. But you've got to get through the dictatorship. But dictators never want to give up their power, so they all blew it. Uh, then the alternative, of course, is, is fascism. Fascism is, is, a, is a religion without a god, in a sense. And communism is Christianity without a god. And why do I say this? Because Jesus does want us to share with the poor. But what the communist says is, don't do it because of your fellowship with Jesus and the church, do it because we've got a, a, a gun at your head, right? So it's like this, this uh, satanic parody of the way of Jesus. It is a false religion, Marxist-Leninism, and so is, so is the Third Reich, right? Hitler wanted to institute a millennium, and he was the Messiah, you see? That's antichrist. But why do I m- mention that? Because if I, I don't know about you, but if I lived during World War II, I would say, this is definitely the end times. This is the Lord of the Rings, this is the end times, and we're still here. But when I was a kid, I knew it was the end times because, because the, the Ruskies were gonna, they, they, it was Red Dawn, it was gonna happen, and it didn't happen, right? So everybody is kind of in that zone for psychological or sociological reasons, but also because we always face these challenges and these threats. And, he, and, like, isn't that the smart thing to do? I mean, I know that in retrospect, bomb shelters seem like a little fringe, but that's kind of what you should do when there's people pointing really large weapons at <laughs> Now, alongside of this, if you want to get people fired up to come to your church, you can do the end times prophecies. Now, the, the good thing about the Calvary Chapel people is they were very biblically centered, and so they said, um, you know, nobody knows Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour so they didn't make the predictions but guys like this guy Harold Camping he said it was going to happen in 1994 I don't know why he didn't just go away he said it was going to happen again recently uh, a few years ago on my podcast uh, that, that we used to do called Virtue in the Wasteland the very second podcast episode we did was we interviewed a filmmaker who actually hung out with them and was, was like kind of sympathetic and he was sad to videotape the lives of people just like us, having church meetings just like this, but they had sold everything thinking that Jesus was coming back and then they were like kind of facing financial ruin because of it. It happens all the time. <clears throat> but uh, <clears throat> to get us the right background, let me just go through these basic things before we get to some experiments. Like what are these terms? What, <clears throat> what are your options for eschatology? Um, they all really relate to this question of the thousand year reign that is uh, mentioned in Revelation 20. By the way, I highly recommend the monocle. You're not allowed to wear a monocle if you have a pocket watch. So, you can't have a pocket watch and a monocle. You can only have one or the other. You also can't have a bow tie and a monocle. You also can't have a bowler hat and a monocle. Okay? Unless you have all those things, then that's perfectly acceptable because then it's your costume. All right, just in case you're wondering. But I highly recommend this especially for those of you getting close to 45. (laughs) Um, So uh, this is Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, He must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there is this idea millennium, right, is a thousand years that there will be this moment where in the kingdom of God on earth, the believers, the followers of Jesus are, are reigning in some way. They are, they are in some kind of influential role over the whole world and society. And uh, we have to then ask, well, is this literal? When does it happen? And that's really the key question. The majority of the Christian tradition is all millennial, which basically means they're not taking it Literally, there's not a literal 1,000 year period. So St. Augustine would be amillennial. It's a real thing, there's this concept, there's something that the Bible is trying to get at, but to say that there's a literal you know, uh, clock that starts where it's 1,000 years is probably not what's meant. Because the Bible, including uh, this text, Revelation, is involved in what's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is intentionally symbolic so that you don't get killed. In other words, you're using code words so that the government doesn't come and say, Wait a minute, are you saying that we Romans are, uh, are antichrist, are sinful? Uh, well, you're gonna, if that's politically dangerous, we're gonna have to kill you. So, by doing it in terms of dragons and stories like this, uh, it was helpful for the early Christian community to speak to each other about their opposition of the tyranny of the beast without getting immediately shown to be a problem. But there are other Christians throughout uh, the history of the church that have taken these two other positions. Uh, One is actually not terribly uncommon throughout the history, and that is post-millennial theology. And post-millennialism is sometimes called by the church fathers the Jewish perspective. And this is because in Judaism, there is this concept of tikkun olam, which is the repair of the world. So that for what the, the, the Jewish religion is trying to do is to say we are, we are the kingdom of God and we are going to restore uh, first our own land, Zion, uh, Israel, and then we're going to then be a blessing to the nations by bringing justice to them. So we are going to treat the land properly You see in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there are a lot of places where it's concerned about the way that we do our farming practices and the way that we structure society. All of that, they were going to bring Torah or God's way eventually to the Gentiles. So that kind of thinking would lead some Christians to say, okay, now after 70 AD, when the Jerusalem church is destroyed, they're killed, almost all Jewish Christians are killed, and the only people left are these, are these uh, Gentile, non-Jewish Christians, they saw their role as to continue to fulfill the blessings of Israel now to the Greco-Roman world and, and then to the ends of the earth. But they thought then that if they could establish a Christian civilization, that was the millennium. In other words, you might even say that for the first thousand years, you know, from the time of Jesus to the year of 1000, that you would... Um, you would have, you would have the ability to say maybe that was the millennium, right? Jesus reigning through the Pope, right? Could be, uh, could be what's meant. But there's also a more recent version of it in Lutheran theology through a movement within Lutheranism called Pietism, far, far more common amongst the Norwegian Lutherans, Swedish, Danish Lutherans, but there certainly were some Germans as well that were into this, and the idea was that. Christianity isn't just about my salvation for the afterlife it's also about establishing the way of God here on earth and so they were often um, they were often removing themselves from from public life and government they would have their own kind of communities within communities the pietists would still believe in the Lutheran confessions they would go to big Lutheran churches but they also had these what they call ecclesioli, these little churches within the church that were basically like Calvary Chapel Bible studies operating with people just like us, but maybe we'd go to one of your garages, you know, and have a little barbecue and we would maybe not invite pastor. You you see what I'm saying? And we would have our own little Bible studies. That's kind of what the pietists were doing and we'd sing songs together and we'd be very serious about morality in our lives. There's another group of Christians. So post-millennial means that Jesus will physically return after we establish righteousness on earth. So you can see it's very much an activist thing. Uh, I used to be the academic VP at a college that's closed now. Uh, It was a pan-Lutheran college called Trinity Lutheran College up in Seattle area. Uh, We had a sister school. Trinity had a sister school down here, uh, California LBI, the Lutheran Bible Institute. That's that kind of world. So in that world, they actually got absorbed at the Concordia, Irvine, but there were many people that were even dispensationalist in the Lutheran Bible Institute movement, but they were they were um, they were had a different eschatology, but they were Lutherans, but they were usually Lutherans in liberal Scandinavian churches that became the ELCA, and so their conversation partners, as I'll show you, were not Lutherans in general, but actually other non-denominational Christians. In Orange County, so it actually influenced it in such a way that you get uh, like the Fossies, John Foss. Was it was John Foss, um, and I forget all the names. There, there are a lot of famous names in the history of Lutheran Pietism that are really centered out of uh, San Pedro, um, uh, uh, Long Beach, and there was a charismatic revival that even influenced, you know, uh, Concordia University, Irvine, in the '70s. That was like a real fight because they were being influenced by the charismatic um, end times kind of teachings that had come into the, the Lutheran world. In any case, that takes us to this idea of premillennialism, which is the idea that Jesus will return, and then there's gonna be a great tribulation, and then the kingdom is established. So you see the difference? Postmillennialism means it's more of um, it's more of us trying to create a just society and I, I should have said with Trinity, it was a difficult job. Because I, it was a pan-Lutheran school where I had ELCA, um, Lutheran brethren, LCMS people. None of them got along. And my job was to get everybody to get along. And, I, and that was terrible. In any case, you don't see a lot of premillennialism in the old days, except around the year 1000, a group of people uh, is, is on the scene called the Kiliast. But Kiliism is another word for millenarianism people that thought surely at the year 1000 or around thereabouts, Jesus will return and either there will be another thousand years after that or that'll be the whole game. Obviously, Jesus doesn't come back, but it strikes me as interesting as a historian of ideas that we see a similar thinking on bumper stickers around the year 2020 when people were saying... um, I don't vote for the Republican or the Democrat, I'm voting for an asteroid to just end this whole thing. Right? You saw. I mean, that's not the only bumper sticker, but there was that kind of thing. And it's that, it's that fantasy that Christians have when they do not see an easy route to bringing Christianity into the mainstream culture. There are times when we say Christianity is culturally dominant, and so it's very rare that when, when Christianity is culturally dominant that premillennialism becomes important. For instance, in 1970s Nebraska, most Lutherans are not really interested in premillennialism because they look around and they say, all our kids are having fun at church, pretty much everybody's a Lutheran, there's some weirdos over there, they're Catholic but they're friendly, and that's that, right? Now we live in a world where people are saying, it's not that I don't wanna go to church with you dad because I'm bad, it's not that I don't wanna go to church with you mom because I don't feel accepted necessarily, it's because I don't accept the church because the church is bad. Things have shifted pretty seriously, right? Like, people are, sometimes young people are not going to church because they think it's associated with anti-Semitism, homophobia, they don't care about the environment, or whatever whatever the cultural issues are. It used to be when we were kids, the churches were always saying, don't worry, you can come in your blue jeans and we'll still love you. The kids are judging the church they're not feeling, they're feeling judged, but they're not that con- concerned because they don't believe in your values, you see. So that, that's also why I was talking about this book and sexy. I, I'm saying like, there is a biblical value that you might really value. One example being, um, if you, you, know, if you uh, grew up in our church, Stacy and I, uh, our church, if you had been a promiscuous high schooler and you were uh, just a partier in, in college, and then you got married, then that, was, then that made you a youth pastor because you had a great testimony. In fact, if you could throw some cocaine in there and some heroin, mo- Satanism, youth pastor, you're good. That's, that's what qualified you in the evangelical days to be, a, uh, to be a, a good Christian. But if you had one divorce and you therefore had sexual relations with only two human beings, your first wife and your second, or your first husband and your second husband, you were no longer accepted in that community. You were, like You were done, right? That wasn't part of your testimony. That was your enduring shame. So if you live in that world and you're a Christian kid and you see your parents go through this divorce and you feel them becoming cast out, you know, when maybe mom really needed help, the church kind of cast her out, then the young people will say, I don't don't need to be a part of that and I don't think the church is is hip when it comes to the teachings on, on divorce. But what if you go back to the first century and you see that divorce was usually a man trading out his wife for a younger uh, prettier model, right? And dropping the wife off at the park so she can either be a beggar or a prostitute or, or, or starving, right? In other words, even if you don't believe in God, to divorce a woman in the first century is immoral and everybody can see it. We, we, tend, to, we tend to not understand what, was the, what the teaching was at the core of the church and therefore we reject it when in a certain moral sense, we should reject the false version, right? But that is what keeps us from hearing the true version. In any case, there is a true version to, in a certain sense, all of these. Um, the Bible contains, on millennialism, the Bible contains figurative language, and that we shouldn't be too worried about speculation about the end times, the way some people would be, uh, because we have a job to do. And that job looks a lot like post-millennialism. That is, we have a role in our vocation to create healthy families, we start there. We heal ourselves, we heal our families, we heal our communities, we bring not just the good news but a way of Jesus to everybody we meet. It's not just about the afterlife, it's about this life too. That's what Christians have a value to society. Also, we cannot assume that we're going to create a kingdom in our own image and anytime societies have tried to do these post-millennial things, they sometimes get a little bit crazy, right? So you don't wanna do that. But the idea is that you know um, there is going to be an end to this current state of being. That said, I stand with the rest of the, the, the Lutheran tradition generally, that millennialism is the better way because each of the themes that's in the book of Revelation recur throughout our lives. That is, there are people in the first century that gave a false gospel. There are people today that give a false gospel, and there have been Hitlers and cultists in between. So the bigger issue is, what is the true teaching of Jesus? Um, That said, why did people get so excited about the end time stuff? It has to do with this really weird thing that happened in England at a place called Keswick, K-E-S-W-I-C-K, where people went to camp, uh, and if you've ever been to like a family camp in the in the Christian tradition, this is different from Orange County church camp, where you just send off your kids so you can have a weekend without them, and they go get converted up at you know some church camp up in the mountains of Big Bear. In the 19th century, family camps were where you would go with your spouse and your four kids, and everybody would go for Bible studies. And um, there would be this beautiful, it's like a uh, really beautiful area in England. It's, it's a really, it's like mysterious. You, you can't help but be spiritual in this area. Uh, kind of near the Lake District, if you've been there. Uh, and they also have some the kind of uh, Stonehenge-type stones that aren't uh, guarded off. So it's a really cool place to check out. Anyway, people would go there every summer, and it was really meaning for them, meaningful for them. Um, it was the only time that young people would feel like church was fun because they were doing in depth Bible studies on themes with popular speakers instead of, you know, the boring 12 minute sermon from their pastor who was just recycling stuff. Not that all pastors did it, some of these pastors were the speakers, but I'm saying uh, the, the, the folks that they had there were dynamic. But what happened was they might talk about five different topics in a summer, but what week? did people want to come hang out at? And times, and times fun. You, you, know, you don't even have to be a Christian kid. If I say, do you want to talk about like different interpretations of Ephesians 2.8.9, or the antichrist and locusts eating grandma's face off in the, in the blood and, and the hell that's coming. Um, I guess that other one, <laughs> the, the scary one, that sounds more fun. So because it was sensational, because it made you feel really smart they could not get enough of fine tuning the end times teaching. Until you get to what I'm showing you here in this example of dispensationalism, this this idea or this theology of the end times, comes to be termed dispensationalism. And it literally is related to these various dispensations or covenantal ages throughout time. And the, the thing that makes it an error from a theological standpoint, from a Lutheran perspective, Uh, is that it basically assumes that God saves people in different ways at different times. Now, not a lot of dispensationalists hold that today, but early dispensationalists believed that if you wanted to be saved in the age of uh, conscience, you should just follow your conscience and God will judge you according to that. But then when Moses comes along, Moses is going to give this dispensation of the law. And so actually you are saved by fulfilling the works of the law until Jesus comes and Jesus provides this amnesty so that between the year 33 and today, the way you're saved is by faith alone apart from works. But then when Jesus comes back, it could be any minute, Jesus is going to vacuum up those of us who are true believers. That's the rapture. Everybody else is gonna be sitting around going, oh no, what's happening? The great great tribulation happens Then we all come back with cool swords and we get to destroy the devil and all his uh, minions. But then the judgment of the nation comes and then the millennial reign comes. But I want you to see that Christ, Christ alone and Christ for us as salvation only really exists for a couple thousand years in this scheme or whenever, whenever it's going to end. And so it's a. It's an interesting kind of theology. It sounds really Lutheran for us, but it's not universally Lutheran for the, for the whole world, right? As a shorter version of how I would, I would respond as a Lutheran, I would say, when you think about um, the communion, um, it sounds really mysterious. A lot of people who aren't Lutherans are surprised that Lutherans believe that Jesus is in with and under the bread and wine. But the reason this is so interesting is because um, in, a, in a very real way, Jesus is... The medicine. So Jesus, 2,000 years ago, is the medicine. And we access that medicine. We access the real Jesus, who is really flesh and blood, in this space of actual bread and wine. And so where is Jesus? He's actually there. And you don't have to come up with some kind of weird philosophical explanation. Jesus is there. But the part that I don't hear a lot of Lutherans talking about, that I wish we would talk about more, is... Is it not possible that we could say that Jesus was actually in the lamb of the Passover as well? That is, it wasn't that the the lamb was symbolic of the salvation of Jesus. It was the conduit. It was the place where you actually connected to that redemption of God. You see, just like baptism for Lutherans. It's not that there's this magical thing, right? Where like, oh, I got the water. Now God loves me. No, it's because God loves me, the washing is real. This This is like a wedding ring. The wedding ring isn't magic. If I just give you my wedding ring and you put it on, you can't run around saying you're my spouse. That's just not how it works. But if Stacy takes off her wedding ring and he, she stomps on it, it's a symbolic act, but it's also doing something. It's actually saying something in the world, right? So what I'm trying to say is that the dispensationalists want to say that the redemptive work of Christ in the past was symbolic of the salvation that was going to come but they thought that actually sacrificing an animal was what saved you. No, no, no. The sacrifice of the animal was actually what connected you to the ultimate sacrifice outside of a hill, uh, in, uh, outside on a hill of uh, a Jerusalem area. So uh, it's actually Jesus that saves us. It saves you retroactively, or it saves you proactively, but the death of Jesus saves you. It's a cosmic salvation, but not for dispensationalists, just for this period of time. Now Keswick, this Keswick movement was really, really popular because the Church of England was kind of, as uh, Eddie Izzard the comedian said, it had no bones, right? It wasn't like a faith that had a lot of principles. It was, a, it was kind of a country club. You know, you weren't sure if your pastor believed in anything. And so the whole thing just seems to be a waste of time. It felt like a waste of time to a lot of people that were going to the little church in England. So what did they do to get their spiritual nourishment was they would go to these camps to get like a mega dose of like a like a vitamin pill to help them with their anemic diet, you know, uh, the rest of the year in the church. But people were not com- they're not they didn't they were not happy enough with that, right? That you need more. You want to be able to still do that throughout the year. So what starts to happen is some missionaries that come to the to America they bring with them the the Bible study methods and the theology of the Keswick movement, right? And so this becomes popular in some places in America, but most importantly there's a guy named C.I. Schofield and Schofield takes all of the notes from this dude Darby who was teaching at the the old gig, right, in England, and he puts the notes into the Bible, which seems like a really great idea because it is cool, right? But the problem is the Bible, you buy it at the store and it's got the gold leaf on it and it's got the India paper and it smells like genuine leather. And you're like, this is the word of God. And so it is the word of God. And there's also footnotes from some dude who was a Bible teacher that had some questionable beliefs, not a bad guy, but questionable beliefs in England that now are in the footnotes. If I'm the organist and I'm after church sitting around reading this Bible I sometimes have a hard time distinguishing the Bible alone from the footnotes and the way it's set up. So all of a sudden, I start to see dispensationalism all throughout the Bible. I see the rapture in places where it's not really maybe there, right? But the most important thing, though, you've got to see this in a, in a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon, is that people started to find that their pastors were leaving the faith. In the late 19th century, a lot of times, if you had a really smart like, student, like I would say, I'll just, I'll just call out uh, David. Uh, David was a student of mine, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of David. I could say, you know David, what we should do, because you're like one of my best and brightest students, I really like where you're going with some of these themes, I wanna send you out to Tubingen. I wanna send you out to Europe to go get a PhD so you can come back and be a seminary prof or you could be like a leading you know, pastor in, in, this, in America, right? But what would happen is I'd send David off to Europe, and they all of the all the seminaries were connected to the state church that didn't believe really anything anymore, and they were they were really more along the lines of uh, like kind of Enlightenment rationalists. So Jesus was a great moral teacher, but he's not really he's not really supernatural in any way, and the Bible is not really to be taken seriously. David might come back and he is no longer going to be talking about the Bible as if it's God's word. And so we might like him still because we're related to him. You know, you're like, hey, dad, you know, let the kid let the kid have a job. But we all secretly then sneak off after his uh, heretical sermon and we hang out and we sing songs in somebody's basement and we read the Bible together because we're not trusting our pastor with the word of God uh, as a sacred text. So the more you got an education, the less you believe in the Bible as literal. And therefore, this is the key, I have to go to the bookstore and I'm going to find a Bible study book. I'm going to find a Bible that has footnotes because I'm nervous. Now, if if I'm an electrician and I'm hosting a Bible study at my house for other, like maybe it's a men's Bible study at seven in the morning. Maybe it's couples, maybe it's women's. But if you didn't go to seminary, You need something that's more than the Bible to help you. But if you buy this book, if you buy the Schofield Study Bible in the 1890s, you are like a hero because now you're like, well, uh, well there, pal, what do you think this means? And you look it up and you go, oh, I know exactly what it means because I've got a footnote. But if you don't have the footnote, you think I'm a genius. Like, ooh, and then I'm gonna show you how it all fits together and you're gonna love that. Point being, in little communities throughout America, all of these mainline liberal denominations, Protestant liberal denominations, the pastors were getting more and more progressive, modernistic, and the congregations were getting more conservative, and they were operating on their own. Sometimes they would even, you know, just uh, uh, start their own seminaries, like Dallas Seminary becomes basically a seminary where they say, this is dedicated to creating pastors that are always going to be dispensationalists. Uh, Biola, up the, up the road in La Mirada, Biola is the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Right out of a college, when I, when I, uh, when I finished my degree at Oxford, I had only three interviews. One at Biola, one at Azusa, and one at Concordia. I didn't get the Concordia gig because I hadn't been a Lutheran long enough. I'd only I'd converted to Lutheranism as an adult. Um, so they wanted somebody who had more roots in it, so I was out of that. I didn't get to go to uh, Azusa because I was Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and they said, that's too, uh, that's too bigoted, and we don't want any of you, and so they wouldn't let me there. And then Biola really liked me, but Biola said, so you believe in the premillennial rapture? I'm like, no, you know what Lutherans believe. We don't believe that. They're like, sorry. They never asked me if I was good in the classroom. They didn't look at my scholarship or my resume. They just wanted to know these basic questions. Now, why does this matter? Because this dispensationalism for Biola was a way for them to say you could be a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a non-denominational Christian. It's hard for me to know if you're a real believer. But if I ask you, do you believe in premillennialism? And you say yes, that means you have to be conservative because no self-respecting liberal, no self-respecting liberal would believe in dispensationalism because it commits you to a literal interpretation of end times, right? It's, it's kind of like when you ask, do you believe in um, young earth creationism? Most people don't really care about science and religion. They wanna know how like, conservative is your interpretation of the Bible. <clears throat> so what they were actually asking of me was they were saying, you know, I don't know the difference between covenant churches and Lutheran brethren and LCMS, so I only have to ask you one question. And if you can answer this question right, it is going to be the past. And this comes from Judges 12, six, where the way they would know if somebody was on your side or not was you would say read this. So if I say sibolet, then I might be from a different region and then I would get killed, right? But if I say Sibboleth, Sibboleth, the different pronunciations of these words um, in the Book of Judges 12:6, that was like uh, what happened in World War II, where people would ask, you know, um, Germans to say really like you know words with W's or um, Ask them about baseball, right? So if somebody was a spy for the Nazis, um, they might look American, they might have great American accents, but you know, if you ask them about Hank Aaron or something, I don't know earlier, right? Uh, about babe, babe Ruth or something, they might not know that because sports wasn't something that they knew. Uh, but for us today, if we were at war with the Canadians and it's coming, um, we can say, "Hey, sound this word out," and they're like, "A boot," mm-hmm. and then we execute you because you said a boot. But my point being. My point being, dispensationalism for a lot of people in Calvary Chapel being one of them was a litmus test. Maybe it's another metaphor to use. It was a litmus test to see who was true Christian and who wasn't. Again, it's not such a big deal anymore, but that's why that was so big of a deal in Orange County. Now, there's a scholar I found really cool, um, right here. Her name is uh, uh, Amy Frickholm, and um, kind of a big fan because she wrote this book uh, around the same time as I was doing my work at Oxford. Um, this book came out from Oxford Press called Rapture Culture. And it's about the Left Behind series. Now, the Left Behind series was all about dispensationalism. It was put into narrative. It was put into fiction. So that became a really big deal. And Amy Frickholm, uh, she was this daughter of uh, this guy uh, who actually was the dean who came after me uh, at Trinity as like the interim dean, uh, Johnson. And, uh, and so she came from a conservative, uh, conservative Christian family. She herself now is, I think, an editor for a Christian Times, which is a very progressive mainline publication. <clears throat> but she's a, she's a historian and scholar of uh, these things. And so she went in to understand the Left Behind series, to study it at a PhD level. And she went in probably thinking that she was going to be uh, very critical of it, very negative about it. But she found something really interesting. She found um, that the book kind of read, I don't know if you've read it, uh, but the book kind of read like an erotic fiction. Uh, the very first line uh, says, uh, "Ray, something like if I'm doing this from memory, Rayford Steele pointed his fully loaded 747 into the sky. Thoughts of another woman on his mind. It just like it sounds like you know kind of a trashy uh, uh, novel, which is fine. But you know what I mean by trashy, right? Stuff you get, for, you know, for your uh, camping trip and you're just reading. Get it at the grocery store, but." Um, but what happens throughout the book is that um, if, you're, if you're pretty, if you're a woman and it's pretty, you get lacerated and dead. <clears throat> because all the men in the book have to be very like, strongly heterosexual. So they have to be attracted to the women that are pretty. But they don't want to have any like, non-Christian type sex. So to resolve the sexual tension throughout the books, the pretty women get killed. All of the strong women in the, in the book are uh, usually very unattractive lesbians. So like, she's just kind of looking at the way in which the, the society is, is understood through these books. But most importantly, she said, the most important or most interesting thing she found was she, she really had a lot of love for the people that were reading this book. Because she lives in Leadville, Colorado. And Leadville is like one of our favorite places. Here's me, Stacy, and I uh, spent 60% of the last three years traveling America to do research on religion and politics in these different pockets. So we spent about a month probably outside of Leadville, great place to do free camping. Our truck campers out here, that truck camper was up there and um, we are fishing and stuff. I actually ran into her just walking down the street. I'm just a big fan, you know, having a good time hanging out. I said, are there any religion jobs in, uh, in Leadville? She said, there's no religion in Leadville. Like, even the Christians are pissed off at Christians. Like, I don't know. Like, all right. So, um, so she kind of lives with her family in, in, in like an old kind of cabin, and she writes books about the medieval mystics. But what she said was the thing that was really interesting about these Bible study groups is it was the only time that women were empowered. These were women that didn't really leave the house. They made their own clothes. They were in small Christian communities in these rural mountain towns. And the pastors didn't really give them a chance to be involved in, in the church. So she would say if they're you know Lutherans or Presbyterians, they experienced church as they would go to church and they were supposed to take notes, but they could never really engage it, right? When you're doing a book study with your friends who quilt, you're all sitting around quilting and you're not debating the Bible, pastor. It's okay, I'm not a woman preaching on the Bible. I'm a woman talking about a book and I have a a BA in English or something. So it was a way for them to bypass the male leadership even though they were mostly very conservative women. But what she says I think is the key to why it was such a big deal for a lot of people. That rapture culture or fixation on the end times often demonstrates a helplessness on the part of the Christian. Because all the main woman in the Left Behind series is a true believer and who doesn't believe her? The pastor? and her husband, and her daughter. They all say, honey, you're stupid. You spend too much time down at church. But at the beginning of the novel, mom gets vindicated. Mom goes away, mom goes on strike. Mom who loves Jesus and loves her family, but they don't love her back. Mom, the fantasy is the same fantasy as the asteroid that I am not understood, I am not believed. The world is a mess. The world's getting worse and worse and worse. So instead of being overwhelmed by this desire to fix the world, I need to just escape it. And so in many ways, I think that's what Amy would say is the, is the reason why you have a lot of this emphasis during times like the Cold War, where Christians started to see their, um, their kind of cultural influence being challenged, but also they were living a lot of anxiety. So it was almost like a death wish in a way, psychologically speaking. Now that said, all this time, everybody's been saying we can figure out the end times if we could just understand this mark of the beast that's described in the book of Revelation. I think there's one piece of evidence that will really help us to see that we should have what's called uh, at least something like a preterist view of the book of Revelation. Preterism is the idea that what it's primarily about is is about the first century Christians and what to do with respect to the persecution that's coming, right? Because really, at a very practical level, if you're a Christian, between 40 and 70, you were living at a time right before, like I said, almost every Jewish Christian was going to be killed. There were a few Jewish Christians that survived in Alexandria in Egypt, and then there were Gentile Christians in Rome and other places. But if you were asking, should I stay near the temple? Should I stand and defend with with swords the temple? That's one option. Or should I retreat from Jerusalem and go live in the countryside. And much of the New Testament is saying to Christians, you gotta go, you gotta get out. So um, how do you know this? He says you will know the problem when the problem is Neron Caesar." This is N-R-O-N, in our, like, transliterated, but this is the Greek name of Nero Caesar, Nero the, the emperor, right? Now, sometimes in, uh, you know, in, in some languages, the, 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 whether it's a nominative or accusative, um, the word will change in its, its uh, endings. So for instance, if you say, um, <clears throat> like if, if you're the subject of the sentence, the spelling of the name is going to be different than if you're the object of the sentence, if that makes sense. So in manuscripts where they use, uh, where, where the manuscripts in other parts of the text, say Neron Kaser, um, the total is 666. It's almost guaranteed, I would think, as a a historian of this thing, it's almost guaranteed that Revelation is directly saying, you know who this guy is, his number 666. Because if you were a Jewish kid, the way that you did your numbers was with the letters. It was not like some magical thing. Everybody knew this. Resh 200, Samek 60, Kof 100, Noon 50, Vav 6, Resh 200, Nun 50. The sum of that is 666. If I get rid of that final nu in, uh, in Greek, it's nero, so neuron is gone, now it's, no, it's nero. If I take out the nun, that's minus 50, so 666 minus 50, 616. So in manuscripts where you see this form for Nero, the number is 616, which shows us, I think conclusively, that the book of Revelation is talking about what are Christians to do with respect to the, to the guy who's going to kill us all, right? And in fact, does blame, does blame the, uh, uh, the Christians for a fire in Rome itself, and so there's a lot of persecution. I want to pause now for a second. That's the, that's the back story, and forgive me if you've already been to seminary or something, or if you're David, you know some of this stuff already, of course. But what I want to now think about is, what does this matter for us now? There's the historical side of it. What I want you to think about is this question. It's a thought experiment. It comes from Asia. And the thought experiment is this. Um, imagine that you are a warrior and you are summoned to a castle. And when you get into the castle, you see there are only three people there. There is the richest man in the land. And he says to you, I will pay you to assassinate these two other guys. And I will make you the second richest man in the land. Who are the other guys? There's the high priest and there's the king. So you have the king who has the opportunity to say to you, wait, 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 don't kill me. I will make you the second most powerful man in the land. And then there's the priest who says, if you kill me, you're gonna go to hell. Also, I will give you spiritual power and blessings if you save me and take out these other cats, right? So the thought experiment is, again, you're in control of the outcome of this, they all want each other dead, who do you kill? Just for fun, I'll open it up to the group here. Who who do we kill? All three of them, them, very good, so this is good. What that answer would be was kind of the answer of the Zelotes, uh, the violent revolutionaries during the time of Jesus. They said the high priest is collaborating with Rome and the money changers, the publicani, the tax collectors, the, 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 uh, the compromisers of the Sadducees, the high priest, the very wealthy high priests, and then uh, let's kill Pontius Pilate. That's going to be the overthrow. What else could you do? No. None of them. That's the answer of Jesus. So the answer of Jesus is found in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, the temptations of Jesus in the desert. I won't read it for you, but you remember Every one of the temptations in Matthew 4, 1 through 11 is related to one of those kings that the Asian thought experiment points to. And the idea then is Jesus is told that he could have all the power. Interesting, who thinks that he's got it to give? Satan. Satan says, I run the place. I'll give it to you. That's an interesting thing, by the way, about about government. Um, I think it's got a libertarian angle to it, but that's another question for another day. But... um, the idea then is that he also doesn't want to have material, the material uh, slot machine of the bread, and he also, uh, so that's, that's the money essentially, and he also doesn't want glory. He's not going to be given that supernatural power where the angels are gonna lift him up. So when Jesus comes back down, what Jesus is saying is, I don't want any of those types of rule. I have a different kingdom, and the kingdom is a rejection of money, power, and glory. However, we all have an expiration date. And so at the end, it doesn't matter whether the world's ending soon or whether you're ending soon. The question is, as the church, was the church after the core of our message in Jesus Christ or was the church after money, power, and glory? If you look to the Danish church, they're all Christians, right? Everybody in Denmark's a Christian. You know, They've got all the money. They don't have to worry about getting the elders together and figuring out how to pay the bills because the state's got it covered, but they've got bishops that don't believe in God, right? So they got the the power, right? They've got political influence, but the church ceased to be the church, right? You've got Hillsong that is this this wildly successful uh, church. Justin Bieber goes to it. They've got really nice clothes that we can't afford, but they've lost their witness, right? I don't say that to call out other brothers and sisters that call themselves Christians, but I think you lose your witness when you're like a rock and roll show, um, just by definition. But the point being, Jesus rejects money, power, and glory. The churches keep scrambling after it. And when that happens, that's what the end times is about. The end times is about looking back on your life and saying, what was your legacy? What was your church's legacy? What were you about? in your father's garden? Were you you seeking first the kingdom of God and letting the other things be added? Or was your legacy really just about your own narcissistic dominance over your family or your money or your power at work or whatever? Now, this is what takes me to Stacy. Again, uh, it doesn't matter if the world's gonna end in 100 years, because we're all gonna end in 100 years. So we gotta figure this stuff out. And one of the things that's really interesting about what Stacy does as a death doula is I've only been involved in a couple cases because, um, because there was religious element to it. Uh, one person turned out to be an LCMS Lutheran, so Stacy goes, I think my husband can help with this one. Um, but she, uh, how would I say this? I, I, had, I had met this person before and it was this, I could see why I can't do it because I, I, I'm too emotional, I get too involved and it, it's too much of a burden for me. Stacy's really good, she's compassionate but she can keep her composure. But I saw with Stacy talking to this woman that she had been able to be, for the first time in her life, given the opportunity to, to face the reality that she was gonna die. I'm like, what is Stacy? I'm like, Stacy, what's your magic? What do you do? Like, you, you're not a doctor, you're not, you're not a therapist. She just allows this woman to admit that she is terminally ill. When her kids don't admit it, when everyone, the doctor is not even admitting it, no one's facing the reality. And she's just allowing her to face the reality. And all of a sudden, she becomes a new person. Even if there's only a couple years left in her life, she's a new person because up until this point, she was always living this kind of fake existence and now she could, she could just be real. She could be real about the things she loves, she could be real about her frustrations, her regrets, her relationship with her kids. This is what the last judgment is. The last judgment is just the light shining down on saying, what was this, right? But what Stacy found is that um, if I ask this question, if Stacy asked the question, if you were to die tonight, or if you were dying tonight, what would be your biggest regret? Let me just think about that for a second. What would your biggest regret be? What Stacy says is that the the biggest regret that people face is. Oh, I think I maybe have it here as a. How would you say it, Stacy? So not having the courage how tell them how to So not having the courage to be the person that they knew they should be, but living somebody else's script. Now, you could say that's probably because they wanted to be naughty, but not always. Sometimes, this could mean they wanted to be better people, but they had these other obligations that they put ahead of Christ. Um, maybe false obligations, right? Um, your in-laws really need you to support what they need, but you end up becoming a bitter person at Thanksgiving, right, because you're fighting with your mother-in-law instead of maybe actually paying attention to your kids who are going through some s- struggles at school. Doesn't matter what it is. But the point is, people not living their authentic um, calling is the, greatest, is the greatest regret for a lot of people as they face death. And in many ways, this is exactly what, um, uh, what we should think about when we think about the last judgment when we think about the end times and another thought experiment might be therefore Before it's too late. Who do you want to be? When the end comes what is the legacy that you want and you can do it right now but it's it's a it's a scary question and If I ask you do you want the last judgment to begin? Your answer probably has a lot to do with whether you're an oppressor or oppressed whether you're a dominator or the dominated, whether you're free or enslaved. Because if you're enslaved by a cubicle job that you hate, by, by a narcissistic spouse that makes you feel crappy every morning, I don't know, then Jesus coming back sounds really great. And that's what Amy was saying. She was saying for women who had in, were in very unhappy relationships, they didn't wanna read about romance. They didn't wanna read about Fabio sweeping them off their feet in the Bahamas because they knew that wasn't gonna happen but maybe Jesus was gonna return soon and they were going to be loved by somebody really properly, right? So it wasn't erotic, it was at a deep level, a desire to be reconciled to peace with God, to peace with themselves, to love of themselves, to have harmony with the world. So if you are, if you are thinking about this, uh, I, I always thought it was weird that sometimes people cry out for judgment in the Bible. And we as Lutherans don't like that because we think, well, judgment's bad, right? Like judgment, I'm trying to avoid judgment. But if you have been lied about, you want judgment, right? If somebody says something about you, they say, mom, you're a terrible mom. You never loved me. And you're like, but your, your brain goes through all these things that you did for the kid. When they talk about their lives flashing before their eyes, that's the truth. That's where God reveals, here it was. And so there is something healing about even your own kids saying, oh, you were there for me, I just didn't see the way you were there for me, or vice versa, right? There's these realities. So if you are unjustly treated, then you want the judgment. But if you've been naughty, and that is not just like personally sinful, but like deeply sinful in the, in the way that you structured your life, that's gonna be revealed. So it's an interesting question to ask ourselves. And the thing that's most interesting is the actual depiction of the last judgment that Jesus gives us, is this odd situation in Matthew 25 verses 31 to 46 about the sheep and the goats. And most of you will know it, you'll have to read it on your own for the sake of time if you want, but basically Jesus says something really terrifying. In the end, you only have two people in this scenario. By the way, I don't think it's perfectly like, I think it's more of a parable, it's more of a thought experiment that he's doing because if you take it totally seriously, I don't know how you fit it in any anybody's theology because basically liberals don't like it because it says that some people are cast out. Right. So if you don't like the idea of of judgment and condemnation, then you've got a problem if you're a liberal. But if you're a conservative Lutheran, you've got a problem because it seems to suggest that unless you're doing homeless ministry and working in the prisons, you're going to go to hell. That's what it sounds like to to the Lutheran ear. What it's saying is, hey, all you people that have the right logo, LCMS, great logo. You got the logo on your lapel, great. Uh, I don't know who you are. Next, who are you guys? I don't, we don't go to church. Cool, but you care about homeless people? Good, you're the church. That's a terrifying passage, and you gotta wrestle with it. But the point being, Jesus says, not that you are, ultimately, if you wanna know theologically what I think it's saying, is not that you are saved by the works of caring for poor people, and caring for people in prison, but that if you never cared about those people at all, you probably didn't understand what Jesus was about. And so your legacy, if it was about crushing those people, this is not something that you want to to be revealed in the end times. And uh, if you are content just to say, I'm part of the right denomination, but you do not have a personal trust in Christ and his way, then that's a warning to you. But anyway, the, the key theme here is the legacy. The question is, what is the legacy? And maybe you could say, uh, you know, as I say, say here, uh, how might this passage sound to someone who has been living under abusive or unjust conditions? Like, if you go to, I'll put it in somebody else's sandbox for a second. I've had a lot of students, if they had been abused by a priest, that don't like, um, they think they don't like Jesus because that's what, that's what it was shown to them. I said, well, if you don't like abuse and you reject a church because you think they represent abuse, that's what God wants you to do. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, I'm a Baptist, and what we do as Baptists is we torture bunnies, you say, I'm not good, I don't believe in that. Um, You might learn later that you like a lot of Baptist teaching, but you were morally right to reject something that was morally evil, right? So the same thing is true. Maybe there's a lot of great things that the Catholics have taught over the centuries But if that was your experience, your rejection of it, when you read this verse, is going to be empowering. In other words, wait a minute, I can still be a follower of Jesus even though the people that came to me in his name were hypocrites or evildoers, you see. And of course, Luther allows us to do this as well. Where is the church, says Luther? Where the word is preached and the sacraments are administered. Not where somebody who's got a fancy ring and a big mitre and he's got titles and he's friends with kings. You see, that's really what's going on here. Also, this is what we mean by the word apocalypse. So when we think about apocalypse, that sounds like a very terrifying thing, and it is, because, you know, you've gotta, you don't like to even wake up in the morning and take a photograph and share it with people, right? That's kind of what happens. At some point, God's gonna show up and say, what's this thing looking like? But apocalypse means unveiling. And so apocalypse is unveiling Uh, leads us to this idea that what is at stake here is the truth of the matter. What does Armageddon mean? Armageddon is mentioned, but one time in the Bible, it's in Revelation 16, 16, but it's uh, related to Har Megiddo or Tel Megiddo. This is this, and it's in a very strategic place for trade. It's a very politically important place. And the idea is that a Tel, T-E-L, is a place where you have uh, kind of... uh, Army upon army, civilization upon civilization, building up this mound of empire over the years. It could be the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the, the Persians, the, the Hebrews, whatever it was, Israel, the Romans. It doesn't matter. It's this idea, the image is, all of the kingdoms of the world, that's where they're going to be assembled and they're going to be destroyed. God's going to overthrow all the kingdoms of the world and the image is this, which is actually a very great depiction of what God's talking about. That the judgment is a judgment on money, power, and glory. I'm gonna conclude with some pictures from our travel, so, so it'll get more lighter. You are who you are. I'm sorry, this is, this is the key thing that Stacy then brings to people when, she, when they're facing death. If we're facing the end times, either for ourselves or for others, we've gotta ask then, what should we do about this? And the answer is you first have to repent. Repentance doesn't mean you become a better person. Repentance, Luther famously understands, is coming to our senses, and that's scary. The only way, (laughs) some people think in in the non-denominational world, that I will be saved if I repent means I will be saved if I stop doing bad things. That's not how Lutherans see it. The Lutheran teaching is God wakes you up through the power of the Holy Spirit, through unconditional love and grace, and only if you believe that God is unconditionally loving can you face what a bad dad you've been, right? Not, that's not the only story. But I will never be able to see how I've hurt my kids and reconcile with them now that they're in college if I don't have unconditional love for myself to be able to forgive myself or to live in the forgiveness of Christ, to see it. But the fact is, if I died right now, who was dad is by definition whatever I've been up to this point at least in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of my kids, you are, right now, who you've been. You could say, but I'm not a bad person, but you've been bad? Then you're a bad person, right? If, uh, I'm not an abusive father, Uh, well, like, you've you've whacked your kids too much. Uh, Yeah, but that's not who I am. Well, no, that's who you are, right? But, it doesn't have to stay that way. That is, I think, the message of repentance. The message of repentance is, not that you aren't going to still have anger issues or whatever, but the definition of who you are, dies, the old Adam dies in baptism and rises anew, and that's what the teaching is, that we don't have to stay that way. So, in the remaining minutes, I wanna show you some pictures from our travels across the USA. Are we living in the end times? If I'm asking it now just in a, it's like, hey, I'm a neighbor of yours, I live down the road in Irvine, we spend most of our time uh, in our RV just kinda of looking out at, uh, the, at the Huntington State Beach, That's our, that's, where I, that's my office away from my office, but uh, when, the oil, when the oil spill happened, I found myself back down in Dana Point. And Dana Point, uh, at a spot there, uh, is, it's the other place where I have my annual pass, you know, for the RV, with the homeless people, it's fun. Um, and we, we hang out there, everybody's got their own little spots. But we used to call this area Mallinson Bluff, but so-called Mallinson Bluff, oh by the way, because we, were, we never had a lot of money, after my dad came down to do real estate, but he knew where all these spots were, we, all we had to do was bring some KFC, and we, we'd be gods, you know, he would like, wait a minute, I got this uh, spot which is just up the road from where um, Nixon and, and uh, I, think, I think Nixon and Brezhnev? They were, they were wading out into the water down there in San Clemente. Um, but now, the, the shoreline is taking out the parking area down there in Dana Point where we used to, we used to hang out. We traveled, again, 60% of the last three years, uh, by the way, this is, I'm not doing an environmentalist scare for you. I'm trying to show you how I'm feeling without being somebody who's bringing like Al Gore's uh, ideology to you. I'm just telling you what I saw when I traveled, which is California's is kinda nice. I don't know if you've noticed, this is a great climate. It's really nice, um, especially here, really nice. But we went to uh, Florida, like the panhandle of Florida, and we stayed at a farm, farm Golden Acres ranch, and she was a nice conservative woman, Republican, but she said, I have to admit that we have some, we have some kind of environmental problem because all my mayhaw trees are no longer going to be producing because of the, the changes to the weather patterns. I might, you know, if you're gonna grow them, you have to grow them up farther north or something. Um, we spent some time, uh, Stacy and our oldest, in uh, Florida, and we really enjoyed it, but the problem was all the snorkeling was starting to get na- nasty because there was a lot of algae blooms. And most importantly, when we got to the red tide, they, uh, a lot of our friends, there was a, one of our friends that was living, uh, what was it, uh, in the White Sandy area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not Pebble, uh, Key, Siesta Key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Siesta Key, so beautiful. Anyone been to Siesta Key? Oh, it's delightful. Except it hurts your eyes because the algae are producing these kind of toxic fumes that are making it so that the workers can't finish building people's beachside properties because you can't breathe. So I mean, you just coughing the whole time. It's like there's this paradise that's not feeling like a paradise. We then went uh, to the biodome. Anyone been to the biodome? All right, biodome's fun. Who started the biodome? Outside of Tucson. Yeah, outside of Tucson. Do you know who started it? They don't like to share this now. Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon was part of the original thing. So that's like now Bannon's in the news, I think. Like, oh boy, like, Steve Bannon doesn't strike me as somebody that was really interested in, in this kind of research. But uh, we were talking to the scientists that were there now, and they said, uh, it was like the scare, I don't, some of you young people, I'm so sorry. The old, old, oldsters of us, we don't care. It's like, none of this is gonna matter like in the next few years, like. Blah, blah, blah. But what was, what was kind of scary? They said we just ran the um, we ran the model, and the idea is we, they would do the, the environmental model to see how would it affect different you know uh, biospheres, and they do certain things to the carbon dioxide levels, and they watch what happens to the to the sea, and they said it's too late for the fisheries, so like get used to you know oysters. I'm mean, like all right, but the the point being there was something that we had done at least they could be wrong that we passed the point of no return in that regard. So that. That sucked. And then we were, this looks like Stacy in uh, the Caribbean, but it's not. This is Stacy in Portland trying to survive a 13 degree heat this summer. We spent a lot of time, we were very excited to go to the Gulf Coast, because you can camp for free. You you could spend all summer on the Gulf Coast. Two things happened. One, there was a couple living in their RV down here, and they got murdered, and then buried in the sand. So we got out of there relatively soon. Um, But also, the thing was, it looks like a nice enough beach but I don't know, down there, uh, it, it, ain't, uh, it ain't Laguna, let me say this. It's, uh, you know, medical waste. Um, you have to wear shoes. Yeah, you got to wear shoes because it's just filled with all this nastiness. And I'm saying, like, this isn't, and then we were, like, running away from hurricanes a lot. Um, th- this isn't a big deal. You know, I don't, climate change sometimes, you know, could be uh, just the way the heavens are flowing around. There have been times all throughout history where there's been little ice ages and heating and so forth, so that's not the biggest issue. To me, if I haven't scared you enough yet, why am I scaring people at the end of the talk? I'll get there, I'll get there. Um, Peak phosphorus is the thing that scares me the most. I'm not worried about peak oil because uh, I just invested uh, this week in Rivian. I am not a financial planner, friends, but I made like a 30% bump in in like one day. Don't do it now, it's probably too late. They're probably gonna collapse, but Rivian, is the uh, truck company, they're making an electric truck, right? And uh, they did the motorcycle movie Long Way Up and they were using those prototypes. Point being, we're all kind of getting comfortable with the idea that, that actually Teslas are pretty, pretty fast and uh, there's some advantages to electric cars, that's great. We can get alternatives to oil. The problem is we're having a hard time figuring out how to feed ourselves. And uh, you know, it's this idea of peak phosphorus. Right here, if you see in this picture, this is the Dust Bowl. And one of the things that happened was we had, uh, we had a farming problem. We weren't doing what the Bible, ultimately the Bible says, is to take care of the land, don't overtax the land, otherwise you're gonna have famines. It's not, a, it's not an Al Gore thing, it's a Torah thing. Just, it's a smart thing. Any, any of my farmer Lutheran friends, they don't have to be left-wingers to say, maybe we should rotate the crops. Like this is just science, right? It's like agricultural science. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So, but the main thing is, if you can kind of see this, if you have the phosphate and lime, if you have the fertilizer, you're going to have the ability to, uh, to help deal with urbanization, people moving out of agricultural areas and moving into, um, uh, into the cities, and you can do the farming. The problem is, if you want to know where the phosphate rock comes from for the, for the fertilizer, if you can kind of see, if you can see this graphic, Morocco, the, 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 gra- the graphic, this little country of Morocco, they've got this thing, this, this rock that we need to survive globally. Um, and then you've got, let's see here, um, the, I have the, oh, I can read it here. All farmers need phosphorus, yet just five countries control around 85% of the world's uh, uh, remaining phosphate rock. So you've got Morocco, China, the US, Tunisia. No, I, mean, I think it's t- Tunisia. Um, but there's an African country, for instance, that um, is not going to get the benefit of it. Right. So it's going to be this kind of fight between, you know, China, I think China and the U.S. over these uh, resources. You have um, you have lobsters making a run for it. They're they're, lead, they're they're heading up to Canada because of the changes there. And there are these fights between the U.S. government and the and the Canadians on when to harvest these things, because, um because Americans, uh, it, they'll, they'll sometimes encroach on each other's disputed territory and so forth. But my family, up in Montauk, up in uh, like Long Island, like lobster is their—that's their world, that's their industry. So it's it's a human toll. And what does this do? And oh, waterways are down. Stacy and I were going to have a lot of fun uh, cruising around in the rivers. But basically, most of the time, instead of uh, doing what we wanted to do. I was uh, like this, I was just leading the, uh, the boat along because it was scraping along the side. People were getting stuck in the Colorado River in their Jeeps because the water levels were so far down. Tahoe wasn't looking good. We saw a lot of really low uh, waters. We had to run from fires everywhere. We went on this dream journey to live in our RV and to experience the good people of America, and it felt like most of the time there was smoke in our eyes, or, or uh, fumes in our lungs from the, from the microbes, you know. Uh, it, it was fun, but it felt apocalyptic. I'm not kidding. It just felt like it was the end of the world. And then we got back, and then we locked ourselves down. This is my son's uh, T-shirt that he made for us. It is a, uh, it is a uh, Le Croix, he calls it. It is uh, the uh, plague. We didn't know how bad the COVID was going to be at the time. So we're stuck in our condo, like, trying not to wring each other's necks. So I... I'm living on the, the flat roof of my garage. And you can see I'm not thrilled <laughs> with COVID. Here is where Stacy and I were in um, Pacific. No, wait, wait, this is near Monterey, Moss. Moss Beach. We stay with some folks near Moss Beach. And you can see um, this road just stops. And so we asked them, like, why did they build the road just into the ocean? They said, no, there used to be a street there. And it's gone and every every year we're losing we're losing part of our property so like in 50 years i'm going to be a foot a, year. a foot a year Jeez. so these are just the realities of this and what does this do there's homes really close to the edge now yeah they're right and they're, they'll eventually go away so so to to kind of bring this to what what should we think of this theologically biblically as christians the first is to face reality it doesn't matter how we blame people Blame industry, blame people who don't recycle, which isn't really going to help us in the short run. You've got to have big systematic changes if there's anything to be done. But the secret sauce for Stacy's work has been to face reality. And so on the one hand, the reality is that we're not, as a culture, we're not economically doing as well as we'd like. I, I, I wasn't a fan of Bill Clinton. I think he's a creeper, and he's got questionable policies. Uh, do you remember the 90s? Wasn't it kind of like, ha, ha, ha I'm gonna get a Sea-Doo," You know, like it was, I wasn't worried about the stuff that we're worried about now, in a way. I just, I, I don't know about you, but, but I've become a little bit more pessimistic. Christians um, angry at each other over political issues, over vaccination, over, um, uh, over, over scientific issues, over gender. I mean, all this stuff, there's just animosity uh, and, and, and despair. But one of the realities that I think that the Bible constantly shows us in Revelation is a new heaven and a new earth. You see, I'm looking at this as like, say chapter 21, verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The, the, the fact is not just that this isn't all there is, but that's helpful. The fact is also that another world is possible. The kingdom of God even in a sacramental way, is something eternal, even if what we build isn't eternal. Even if someday the Mormons buy this building or, or, or they turn it into a casino or it becomes, a, a who knows, like a parking lot. The things that we do as the church, as the called out ones, the people of God, are eternal right now. The fact is none of it will last forever and ever. Weeds will grow up over it. Um, but the, the other part of that is that the, that the kingdom of God that we build in each other's lives right now has eternal significance. The love that you share to, to the high school kids uh, intergenerationally, that has eternal value. The support that we have for people as they face terminal illness, death in their family, struggles financially, the moments that we share together in support, that is a reality. And I think the idea that another world is possible is by itself an important piece of scripture. The idea that, the, that there will come a day when the lion lays down with the lamb, again, I'm thinking this is probably metaphorical because uh, lions do like the taste of lambs. Uh, but maybe not, maybe it's totally literal. I think that's even better. Uh, vegan lions, that's great with me. I think I'll let, uh, I'll let them hang out in my, my living room if that's how that goes. But the point being, that other world is the other thing that we sometimes forget. If you, if you read the book of Revelation and all you see is fear, that's not going to get you anywhere. Perfect love casts out fear. The unconditional love of God is the message. This is, in fact, the whole message that got Luther changed around in terms of what the, ref- uh, what the whole Reformation was going to become. Because in Romans it said, hey, the righteousness of God is coming. And what, what Luther thought was, the righteousness of God is coming means God's going to beat the crap out of me. But Luther said in his famous experience, his tower experience, he said, what if the righteousness of God coming, what if the end times is the gift of Christ's righteousness coming as a treasure for us? It's not just a righteousness that's imputed to us, but it's also a righteousness that's going to heal us. And it's going to heal our communities. It's going to heal our families. This is what the ultimate reality is. Almost done. Matthew 24, 6 through 13. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead people astray. And because lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now I don't, I, when I read this as a kid, it was like, if I, if I like, don't give up hope, then I won't go to hell. But I think what it's also saying is, don't lose heart, don't be impatient. God does have this. And if there's anything that the Christian community has preached from the beginning, If there's anything, it it is this law and gospel. The law tells us, in the the fundamental sense, that we're all gonna die and that the world has an expiration date. But the ultimate reality, I think, and I thank you for wearing the shirt, everything's gonna be okay, the ultimate reality is egg everything's gonna be okay. To help help this become a conclusion, I just wanna ask you this, this last, last thought experiment, and then I'll open it up for questions, would be why is it, when I say to a lot of Christians, that the Bible's main message is that everything's gonna be okay? Why is it that they say, no, it's not? I think it's a fundamental lack of faith, but I don't wanna make you feel bad. I'm not trying to be mean to you if you, if you think that that's the way you're thinking. People will say, yes, but some people are judged or palaces of the world will end in smoke and ashes. And I will say, whatever God's judgment is, it either is okay or we ought not worship God. In other words, what the Christian commitment is to say, I don't know exactly what God's doing when he's doing his judgments, but if I trust in the loving Father, the creator of the universe, who sent his son to reconcile the world to himself, then I have to believe that the all-powerful God that is in charge of history is bringing this to a final chapter that will redeem all of the chapters. This is what Saint Irenaeus talks about as recapitulation but the basic concept is this. We are in the midst, let's say it this way, we're in the midst of a novel, we're in the midst of a story. In any good story, there's gonna be some pitfalls. You know, Voldemort's gonna hassle uh, Harry Potter. Uh, There's gonna be a lightsaber battle between uh, Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Some things that aren't pleasant. But if you get to the end, and all is well, and all is reconciled, I think we can actually say that all the philosophical problems we have about the pains that we've suffered, go away the idea is that there is a beauty that is so much more beautiful than we could ever even imagine that it shines light on all the darkness that we've ever experienced it's hard to say that sometimes because i've seen a lot of pain i've heard stories from students that have a lot of pain but i i i, I think i agree with uh, julian of norwich who 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 had this refrain that everything's going to be okay and she asked god like there's this teaching on hell and judgment What do I think? And and she had this sense that God was saying to her, you don't have to know how it will be okay, but you've got to trust in the power of me to be able to show you at the end, whatever it's like, when the final chapter is written, you will say, oh, dang, that's nice. That's really nice. I never thought it could be that beautiful. Or as the uh, cabbie said in the last battle in uh, in C.S. Lewis's novel, uh, The Last Battle, uh, he says, well, if I knew it was going to be this beautiful, I would have behaved myself better. Uh, It's like it was just like there's something so beautiful. It it makes you want to be a better person, not because you're worried about going to hell, but because you want to be a part of this kingdom that is beautiful and healing. So this is what uh, I'll close with this. Lady Julian says, learn this well. Learn this well. Love was God's meaning. Who revealed this to you? Love. What showed God to you? Love. Why did he reveal this? For the sake of love. Hold yourself in this love. Love and you will learn and know the depth and the mysteries of love. In this contemplation, I learned that love was our Lord's ultimate meaning. So our good Lord answered all the questions and doubts that I would bring forth saying in an entirely comforting manner, I may make all things well, I can make make all things well, I will make all things well, and I shall make all things well. And you will someday see for yourselves that all manner of things shall be well. The end is coming and it's gonna be okay. Thank you. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter no too much.